Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world. Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at AsianHustleNetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to another episode on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have Paul Sue of Decasonic. Paul is located in Chicago in the venture capital field. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brian. Excited to be here. Of course. We always ask this question to our guests in every single show. We want to hear about your backstory. Tell us about who you are. Absolutely. If there's one theme I leave with everyone today, it's the concept of life changers. I think about the prior generations of our ancestors, the sacrifices they made, the life-changing decisions they made to make us who we are today. I feel that burden as an Asian American, you know, living in our generation to improve future lives of the future generations. And and a lot of my backstory reflects that generational perspective around life changers. Yeah, I want to unfold that and hear about that some more, right? What was your typical upbringing like? What was some of the values that your parents installed in you growing up? Three generations under a household. My parents came over from Taiwan without a lot of money in their pockets. They're entrepreneurs by background and really encouraged us to work hard and work smart. My mom comes from a background of fishermen and merchants in the Taiwan Strait. My dad comes from central Taiwan, farmers by background. They fled various challenges in their homeland to set up here in America, Connecticut in particular, to pursue the American dream. I was born here and was able to fulfill those dreams for them. I mean, that is, that's amazing, right, to hear that. And I had no idea that your dad is from a farmer background. Actually, my dad also from a farmer's background as well. And that's the hard work ethic that's that's installed into us, right? I mean, a lot of things they do back then is heavily labor related. And the dream, the American dream is always to have their kids not break their backs in the field. Our parents also instilled in us smart work. And, you know, how, how do you leverage that hard work into something scalable? And it was from that experience that learned a lot my Three younger brothers and myself learned a lot about how do you find these professions? How do you invest in learning about how the world is changing so you can adapt to it? Yeah, I mean, those are concepts that would never go away, no matter which generation you're in, which lifetime you're in, right? You have to be aware, you have to be able to adjust, you have to be able to adapt. But more importantly, for those who are not watching this video on YouTube, there's a sign back behind me that says always hustling. I want to hear about like how your parents had hustled their way in America to make their life in Connecticut. I can't imagine a situation where they came over here and had everything handed to them, right? They had to work really hard to set that foundation for you guys. And how has that mindset influenced the way you look at the world right now? And how has it influenced the way you run your business right now? I have a lot of respect for founders who pursue these dreams and passions, the do or die hustle you need to 
you know, achieve the first milestone of success, let, let alone the ultimate success. My parents worked together when they first started their business here in Connecticut, would drive door to door selling jewelry to uh, other retail stores. And, and that was impressed upon me and my brothers early on. We were taught the value of hard work and appropriate risk-taking. This is something we think through all the time now at Decasonic. I've applied those lessons to an investing career. Yeah, let's quickly talk about Decasonic for quick and you know being selective about your risk-taking, right? I think that is a concept that's kind of overlooked in some ways. Because I feel like within Asian culture, it's either we're too risk averse or we're too risky, right? It's kind of like the fine balance to find in between that line of like, what is risky enough to take action and what's not risky, right? Because a lot of times we're taught, hey, go to school, get good grades, work really hard, keep your head down and, you know, just live a very comfortable life. Or you have parents that are like, we don't believe in the educational system, just do your own thing, go hustle away. But how do you find a fine balance and how did have you incorporate those two concepts with Decasonic? Brian, what we're seeing in the world today, the changes, the uncertainty, that traditional white collar career is probably more risky. There are no givens in life today. And the ultimate risky path is not being aware of what's going around in your surroundings. I think about that all the time. What I do is a reflection of 20 years of technology investing and operating experience, I believe what I do is not as risky as a traditional white collar job. I'm in control of how we raise funds, how we deploy funds, how we add value to our founders. We participate in situations that have asymmetric upside, and hopefully they have high floor value and high return potential. Just because something has high return potential doesn't make it more risky or less risky, but it is an area of expertise that I've cultivated over two decades. And and it's a area of expertise I've comfort around generating risk appropriate activities. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for you guys that don't know, Paul and I actually connected a couple of days ago via LinkedIn. And I could tell from his perspective that this person is extremely knowledgeable and he knows a lot about the venture side. Right. And before we get to the venture side, I'm kind of curious of your parents' like parenting style, right? Are they strict on you? Are they not strict on you? I mean, how does a parent successfully pass on like the entrepreneurial values to their kids correctly? Right. I feel like you're too strict. Your kids won't do it. You're too loose. Your kids probably do something else. But how do you find a fine balance? Because your parents are entrepreneurs. You're a very successful entrepreneur in my eyes. What was that upbringing and like values like for you in their parenting style? Brian, I was so happy when we connected on LinkedIn. I've been a big fan of your Facebook group since the very beginning. Very inspired by those stories of entrepreneurship in our community. You know, and when when we spotlight these inspirational stories, it does encourage and inspire others to pursue this path. It does uplift people when we are going through bear market. And you know, that shared community of inspiration keeps us hustling harder. I share that as a very similar mindset that my mom had shared with us growing up. Try your best, embrace your setbacks, hard work, good people will find success. Growing up, you know, being the oldest of four brothers, we studied hard and we competed pretty hard in sports too. You know, baseball, swimming, tennis, yeah, obviously the the childhood memories of uh, beating up on your brothers or getting beaten up, you know, 
we we also had extended cousins in in our household. So there are a lot of boys around our upbringing, and that fosters this mindset of you don't just put your head down and work hard, but you, you do need to work smart. You need to think about how do you compete, how do you win certain games or tournaments, how do you learn the rules so that you can become the best at that game. And, and a lot of those lessons growing up apply pretty well to business. My parents always encouraged us to go into business. They didn't discourage us to enter medicine or law or, or other white collar professions, but we saw how our parents were able to create work-life balance, work together for now over 50 years, you know, work in a family business. These were aspirations that our parents had for me and my brothers growing up. Yeah, I mean, it's so inspirational hearing that, right? The likelihood of a married couple working together for 50 years is pretty much very slim, right? And the ongoing analogy that I always have in my head whenever I work with like a business partner is that you're essentially married to that person, right? And for your parents to work together, they are married. And now it's like a separation of marriage, kids, responsibility, business and everything. And they made it work, right? So huge props to them for, for making that happen. I found business as a calling early on in life. And this personal professional blend really does change a perspective around purpose-driven leadership, long-term partnerships, long-term relationships, and generational aspirations. I'm just passing along these ideas to our future generations, our community, our community of collaborators. And when you find that personal and professional passion, work isn't work. Work is play. Play is work. It just blends together. I'm just so humbled by my expertise aligning to something that I truly love. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Finding your passion early on, knowing the impact that you're making. More importantly, as you mentioned earlier, having control over your own life, right? As we see at every bear market, there's tons of layoffs. The market is doing like crap. Crypto market is not doing so hot neither, right? And like the only Basically, whenever you do your own thing, it's like you're developing a new skill, a survival skill. doesn't matter what the market is. doesn't matter. No company is going to dictate your future, right? I think ultimately, I think that's the most important thing. But I want to hear about your entry to venture capital. How did you get started? And why did you get started in venture capital? My dad got us an IBM computer very early on. In life, I think I was about six and he bought one of the first IBMs, not, not Apple. And then we, we had Apple computers in the 80s that sparked big interest in technology. And so seeing the waves of client server and in high school, it's going to date me. But back then it was Windows 3.1. In college, it was .com and buying domain names and trading Netscape and iOmega and Yahoo stock. Amazon was an IPO, we remembered. This captivated and channeled that energy and interest for math, science, behavioral economics. That passion started early. And again, now we're in not web one, web two, but web three you're seeing a lot of the same innovation happen over and over again. I'm just fortunate to have three waves of this innovation in internet technology that can impact the mainstream society. Yeah, and I wanna follow up with that sentence with a question, right? What kind of parallels have you seen with like web one and web three? I feel like with your situation, you've been uniquely enough to be in all three waves honestly, when I read, I mean, I'm slightly younger, so I read articles about like the dot-coms boom and everything. I see articles that are very parallel to what I see now, 
with what the media is saying. The internet, it's funny. I think I saw an article in the past saying like the internet is a sham. Like it's not here to stay. People are never going to purchase stuff via online or credit cards. And I see the same thing in Web3 now. Like Web3 is a sham. It's a scam. And being in both realms, I want to hear about the parallels like you witnessed personally. History rhymes and technology adoption maps to you know, laws of technology. Innovation follows that similar path. There are certain laws of creative destruction in innovation. No one bats 100% in finding the best ideas to impact society. We're lucky if that's a 1% success rate. <laughs> you know, if you're a 1% success rate, you're, you're a top tier venture capitalist. You know, the creative destruction that you saw in dot-com is very similar today in Web3. Uh, Web3 today is dot-com of 2000. We're at similar adoption rates and that impact of society. It's also very easy to be a skeptic of emerging technologies of all kind, dot-com, mobile internet, social networking, and Web3. And so you're seeing a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels, especially in this bear market, relate to that timing, you know, internet adoption in 2000, dot-com bull in 2000, bear market in 2000, <laughs> very eerily similar in 2022. And, and a lot of it, you know, results from, you know, inflated expectations of a promise of a technology. And, you know, every innovation cycle has that sort of overvalued expectations, you know, over exuberance, as Alan Greenspan was saying in 1998. Sometimes they're fueled by monetary policy. Sometimes they're fueled by certain market structures, a lot of parallels between those, the, the, these two innovations. And at Decasonic, we do apply this kind of reference case studies, benchmarks to better manage our portfolio during these downturns. We enjoy sharing these insights with entrepreneurs to better survive and thrive these days. You know, a lot of those layoffs, restructurings, market pivots in the 2000s, we're seeing the same thing happen today in Web3. Wow. I mean, that's really good perspective, right? And obviously, like I wasn't old enough to comprehend what was going on during like the dot-com boom, but definitely see a lot of parallels from my own research, right? Seeing there's a lot of investment money going to dot-com companies at the time that were highly, like highly overvalued companies. And not to say that there's strictly apples to apples comparison right now. There's, of course it's not, Right. But to see like a series A go to like 20 million or like a seed round go to like 30 million, you're like, what is going on? And it's just so, so eerie that it's just like a history repeating itself, right? Because you saw this in the dot-com boom, exactly what happened, right? They went through a slight recession, companies corrected, evaluations lower, and now innovation happens. And I kind of expect the same thing to happen in the next five, 10 years, right? Brian, maybe I could share a little bit of what might be different this time. I'd love to hear that. Just speaking probabilities, because it's never a for sure thing in this uncertain world of technology. A few things might be different in Web3 versus .com. One, I remember as a you know, mid-20-something-year-old, .com layoffs led to people going back to grad school, law school, medical school, business school. The top talent left the industry and quite arguably didn't come back for five to 10 years or, or never. There are a few of my classmates from Yale who never came back to internet. Aside from the retail market 
crypto exchanges or, or any fintech company related to crypto trading at the retail level, generally you're not seeing those layoffs scare off talent. There's more talent coming into our space these days than less. A lot of the traditional tech companies are shedding their jobs and the talent is still migrating in. Not a lot of people are leaving Web3 and giving up on it. So that that's such an early indicator of you know how this evolution revolution may transform over the next five to 10 years. And as a result, capital providers like ourselves, we're very active in markets today. We follow that top talent. If you are a top programmer, mathematician, statistician, web designer, UI, UX product designer, that demand for jobs is still tremendous. Capital is still finding the best talent. Capital did dry up in the dot-com world. So, you know, if talent leaves, capital dries up too. And, and so those two things, you know, are significantly different this time, not to be drinking the Kool-Aid of Web3 and, you know, uh, trying to fight this macro recession globally we have going on, but it's it's a nuanced perspective that people have to be cognizant of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are really good key things to point out, right? The key differences. And I, I do agree. I feel like the talent nowadays is much stronger than it was back then. Also, the way that the Web3 industry or Web3 category is, to me, it's, it's a huge community, right? There's a bunch of loyalists in there. It's a bunch of fanatics in there. And I feel like compared to before, like people are more bullish with these more risky ventures not really knowing what the feature would entail, but knowing that it is a part of the feature, right? And that's one of the key differences I see with Web3. Related to this, dot-com did influence my generation, Gen Y. You know, a lot of my classmates were inspired by that culture of digital natives. These days, you talk to a lot of high school, college generation kids, Gen Zers, they grew up on Roblox and Minecraft, the metaverse, digital native is my generation now, they're starting to be crypto natives. And, and so that blend of technology and culture, culture influencing technology is creating and accelerating the Cambrian explosion of ideas to improve Web3. And, and again, this is something of a leading indicator of how durable this Web3 innovation will be. And you know, when you look at the fundamentals of capital talent culture, it does get you very optimistic about the long-term impact of Web3. I, I love it. I love that perspective a lot. And I'm kind of curious about how Decasonic really ties into the Web3 world and the venture world at the same time. Decasonic is my life's work. You know, my purpose in life is to create a better tomorrow, to build a better tomorrow. Decasonic is how we build a better tomorrow faster. That's our tagline. We embrace innovations like Web3 to improve you know, use cases, to improve society, especially mainstream use cases. We raised this $50 million seed stage crypto native venture fund. We look to be first or second check into a company. And then we roll up our sleeves to help find product market fit, to help hire, to help scale. We intend to co-build with our founders and, and bring this impact to society. I, I love that. You know, I, I love rolling up your sleeves, finding product, product market fit, you know, h- hiring the right talent. I think that the biggest misconception that most people have is like, oh, you get the check and that's it. 
you know, just leave. You don't talk to it to them. And to be honest, if you're like a first time founder or even a second time founder, there's a lot of nuances that you still, it's going to be your first time you're going to see that problem. Right. And honestly, hiring, no matter what type of founder you are, is still going to be the hardest part of your company. Right. As a founder, like what you were saying earlier, Brian, you want to have committed capital. Now, you know, it's just like a marriage. If you want to be equal partners and have everyone contributing to that value growth, you, you find someone who can add that value, fill in some of those gaps of your perspective to take it to the next level. For some founders, they, they want passive capital. You know, get out of my way. Let, let, let me just do my own thing. It works for some people. I don't want to say there's only one way to do this, but raise that capital that's very aligned with how a founder wants to work. It, that That's going to create the long-term success. We feel at Decasonic, we have the technical value add, the full stack value add to help accelerate that growth. And this is how we de-risk our, our situations, creating an asymmetric 100x potential in a lot of our situations we look at. So, yeah, I think that's less risky than you know, other situations. But again, yeah, it, it fits into how we have manufactured our success in, in the last 20, 20 plus years. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely love that. And that's kind of, if you don't mind me asking, let's walk through a scenario of like you raising that $15 million fund, right? Typically, how many companies do you do you guys invest to in during that fund duration? How active are you helping the founders? Are you having weekly meetings with them, monthly meetings with them? How do you find out if the founders need a lot of help or handholding? Because at the bit, you want to find a balance, right? You don't want to be in a, in a situation where you're overbearing. It's like, are you doing things right? Are you your financials? Or you don't want to be in a situ- situation where you're literally treating like a middle child. I'm a middle child. How do you, <laughs> how do you neglect a child, right? Uh, how do you find that balance? And then like, typically, how many companies do you invest to, into during that $50 million fund? Most venture funds are 10-year funds with some extensions, A lot of venture funds have five-year investment cycles and good venture capital diversifies across 20 to 40 different companies. Generally, those are the benchmarks and we're not too far off of that. With the speed of crypto growth these days, some crypto funds have shorter life cycles and shorter investment periods. They're taking a lot more single point in time of market risk, good or bad these days, you know, it's probably great if you're investing now and if you have a lot of your fund. If you did this a year ago, you're probably upside down a little bit. So, you know, generally, if you're playing for the long term, you, you want to invest over five years. That That's what we're doing. And you have a 10, 10 plus year fund cycle. This aligns to generally entrepreneurship. You know, there are very few quick wins in starting a company. These things take seven to 10 years in many situations. And so, you know, having a full alignment of how capital views their deployment schedule with a founder's life cycle really matters. It's really good to hear, right? You have to think long-term. Uh, I think that, I think the way society is right now in the way that it's positioned, we're conditioned for instant gratification. You can get rich tomorrow, all these darn infomercials that you see. <laughs> Honestly, anything that's worth doing that will create everlasting legacy and like impact, it's going to take a long time, right? And that's a good perspective for our listeners to hear at least. Because sometimes we look at you from an outside perspective or look at other people. It's like, well, like you're seeing like almost like a near finished picture. But behind that, it's like 20 years of hard work. And Brian, so what one thing we think about too is short-term speed of learning, speed of improvements towards 
a long-term vision and a long-term conviction. So it's not to say, hey, have a long-term vision, but operate slowly, learn slowly. But given the pace of information, pace of capital these days, the volatility, you have to learn fast. You have to make those improvements. You have to make more life-changing decisions be on the lookout for life-changing opportunities. Back to my initial theme, you know, if I have three life-changing decisions a month that I've done well on, and you only have three a year, well, I'm 10x better than you just on math, right? And, and, and so consider that the continuous improvements that the Japanese made during the 80s, you know, that is such a mindset that we had driven at Zynga with data-driven execution and measuring, hypothesizing, A-B testing, how do you generate those continuous learnings to compound improvements over the long run? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the book, uh, what is it, Atomic Habits, where you improve yeah. yourself. James Clear. James yeah. Clear, 0.01% every day. And eventually it'll all compound. Exactly, 37 exactly. X. Yeah, and I really like the fact that you mentioned the Kaizen model as well that Toyota invented about no wasted movements, think he'll reiterate, reflect is a huge part of any entrepreneur journey, right? You don't take the opportunity to reflect. You don't take the opportunity to learn and make the slightest improvement. Even the slightest improvement can like take you in a completely different direction, like different direction in life, right? And I really like that you really enforce that not only with Decasonic, other founders, but kind of curious to get more a concrete example for our listeners to hear, how does Decasonic work with like a founder one-on-one? Just give us a hypothetical situation. That's right. You asked this question earlier, Brian. A venture capitalist, a capital provider working with a founder can be like parenting. <laughs> you know, so some children want the helicopter parenting and they, they, they want monthly, weekly, daily check-ins. They, they, they want you to be part of the management team and yeah, they, they want you to make some of those executive decisions. And, and that, that's one way of being successful. My CTO and I, we have those experiences of leading teams. We're, we're able to do that. Back to my initial upbringing of working hard and smart. I, I, I hate helicoptering. You know, let, let's check in on the most strategic moments of your company growth, your inflection. And some of those might be externally driven. Some are internally driven externally driven. March 2020, Ukraine, February 2022. Proactively, we're calling our founders and you know, discussing tops down, bottoms up, what the implications of that macro means to a particular business. Let's shore up the top line. Let's look at the competitive landscape. Let's look at our roadmap. Let's look at our expense structure. And importantly, let's look at our runway. Very disciplined checklist to go through something that if it takes 30 minutes, we'll do it in 30 minutes. If it takes three days, we'll do it in three days. But that's an external event that triggers that conversation. We obviously have monthly check-ins or you know annual board meetings, what annual strategic reviews, OKRs quarterly. Generally, the external and internal strategic moments is how we think about managing our, our portfolio, our relationships with founders. I love that. I love that a lot. This is like a follow-up question, right? I'm kind of curious about your relationship with founders, right? How do, how do you typically build a relationship with them? Do they usually message you coldly on LinkedIn? How do you usually reach out to you? That's a question I feel like it's kind of great that no one really talks about that much, right? 
you know, Brian, you, you and I connected through the cold outreach. I, I think maybe I emailed you or, you know, or you, you added me, I added you on LinkedIn. I knew your body of work. Uh, I've been a big fan. I, I've seen your, your results. It's, I'm never going to discourage anyone from reaching out cold to any capital provider or, or anyone for that business. That the worst thing that could happen is a ghost or a no, right? you don't die. This isn't surgery, you know? And so I, I would always encourage entrepreneurs to kind of re reach out cold. You know, obviously warm referrals are a lot better. Establishing that track record and, and that reputation always matters. And that's generally how new relationships are formed. And Brian, going forward, now, now that we've established a, an initial working partnership, I, I hope to deepen it too. And, and generally, that's just good human nature, good humanity of being a good contributor pay it forward. And, and I think a, a lot of, a lot of VCs are, are well-intentioned that way. You know, I do struggle sometimes in box zero, digging out of all the referrals, you know, we have so much going on. It's, it's hard to respond to everything, but we, we do our best to, to, to add value, to pay it forward whenever we can. Absolutely. And just give our listeners more context. Paul was extremely helpful in our first phone, first phone call we had together. And I can see that this is the way he carries himself and this is the way he carries himself with other founders as well. So thank you so much for that, Paul. Yeah, of course. So Paul, we have two questions left. And the first question is, I'm kind of curious about your stance in today's market with Web3, knowing that the Fed's definitely hiked up you know, the interest rates recently and there's a few more on the way right, to combat a high level of inflation. As a Web3 enthusiast and adopter, what kind of warnings or advice would you give to someone navigating the field right now? My warning would be don't give up on Web3. <laughs> you know, this is the generational opportunity of today. It's easy and convenient to listen to the skeptics right now. It's easy to just focus on the shortcomings and the key bugs of this technology. Very similar to dial-up internet for .com. Very similar. It's not to deny those claims. It's not to deny the challenges we have in, the, in this industry. For every key bug, that is an opportunity for you and me and others to go fix and build and create 100 Xers. You know, longer term, if you're a builder in this space, there's no bigger opportunity in our generation. This has transformative potential to impact society. It's on us to go build that. There are obviously areas, dark corners of speculation, other, you know, transitory you know, opportunities in Web3, similar to .com. Do your own research, dig into the reputations, you know, know who you're partnering with. I, I am a real identity. I care about reputation. I, these, uh, you know, pseudonymous identities that, that presents an added layer of risk that I would just caution people diving down into. So very bullish about the long-term opportunity of Web3, obviously, you know, Proceed cautiously, do your own research. Absolutely. Like all things in life, proceed with, with caution, do some research, do your due diligence and, you know, don't let it stop you because I think regardless of what you choose to do in life, you're always yeah. going to hit hurdles. You're going to hit, you're going to hit roadblocks, yeah. but it's up to you to just push through them because you can do it. Absolutely. And Paul, final question. How can our listeners find out more about you and more about Decasonic? I'm available on Twitter, LinkedIn. Paul Sue, P-A-U-L-H-S-U. Decasonic is active on 
Instagram and LinkedIn, Twitter, D-E-C-A-S-O-N-I-C. And I also have a link tree, Paul Sue as well. Perfect. We're include all of that in the show notes. And Paul, thank you so much to, to be in our podcast today. Really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Of course. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.